What is up, everybody? Welcome to Between Frets, a space where female musicians meet and discuss all things music. I'm your host, Jenny Jam, and today it's a beautiful Saturday here in the D.C. area. Right now, the country has opened up and I've gone through phase one. My area, since I'm close to the city, most of the states, Maryland and Virginia, have opened up and have been going through phase one. But since we're a little closer to the city, we are now opening up June 1st. That includes Northern Virginia, D.C., and the Maryland area that are all close to the D.C. area. So um, things are slowly opening up, but it's not even about that right now. I just, I'm just going to be really real right now and what's going on. You know, we're, we're in a time where we just experienced a lot of tragic, horrific events with the murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and even Breonna Taylor. This happening right now, again, it's very devastating, it's disgusting, and people are angry. So yes, there are protests happening. Protests are happening here in my city. They happened last night, they're happening today. They're gonna happen tonight. People are just angry right now. Now, we at Fret Sisters, we're all about the music. We're all about, you know, sharing the love of the female musicians, you know, the female community. That's, that's what we do. But we also have feelings. We too are hurt and devastated and angry. While we don't condone the violence that's happening, we're not shocked. And just like I just read a tweet that said, with what's taking place right now, if anybody is shocked about what's happening, then you haven't been paying attention. That to me is just says it all. We're, we send our condolences out to the families you know, we hope justice will be served. And, you know, just everybody, please stay safe as the country is opening back up. But, you know, the thing is, is between frets, we're bringing in this content to you so that you could take a break and listen to these wonderful artists. It's our quarantine season, and we were supposed to end in May, but it's just, we just the honor of being able to, to find artists and getting the support that we got. We've extended our quarantine season up through the beginning of July with some wonderful, wonderful women. So please take the time to listen to our podcast and support all these wonderful, beautiful musicians. This episode is epic. This episode pretty much checked off our bucket list. I'll tell you one thing. I had the pleasure of speaking with her. It's, I mean, I'm a loss, I'm at a loss for words. The amazing thing is that Jenny Jam used to be the name that people called her. She is also one of the first female musicians to land one of the top gigs with the king of pop, Michael Jackson. If you don't know who I'm talking about, it's Jennifer Batten. We have her on our next episode. And I am going to say this, I am thanking Gretchen Men for connecting us with the following guests that you're gonna be seeing. Our next lineup 
it's all because of Gretchen. And Gretchen is our fret sister's goddess. <laughs> so anyways, we love you. Thank you for the support. And take a listen to this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Peace and love. Hello, everyone. This is Jenny Jam, and we are back. Fret Sisters is truly delighted with our next guest for Between Frets. She's an accomplished, heavily respected musician, guitarist in all genres, straddling the worlds of classical, jazz, rock fusion, electronica, world music. The list is endless. She is well known for her eight-finger tapping technique, but perhaps famously known for being the guitarist for the King of Pop, Michael Jackson, and performed three world tours as well as his 1993 Super Bowl halftime performance. Also, she toured and recorded with eight-time Grammy Award-winning and influential guitarist Jeff Beck. She's an instructor, author, and master of her craft. Everyone, please welcome Jennifer Batten. Hey, hey, hey. How's the East Coast? Oh my gosh, the East Coast. Well, it's sunny here, but it's cold. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's cold and it's warm. How's it over there? You're in the West Coast, right? Um, LA? Yeah, you know, it, it's been very summery on and off. And today it's normal rainy Portland. Oh, okay. So you're in, you're in Oregon. Yeah, I escaped L.A. 15 years ago and will never go back. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. I'm sure it's so beautiful up there. Oh, it's so green. Yeah, you yeah. get to breathe full oxygen up here. Oh, definitely. How um, the first thing we want to find out is how is everything going through this time, this unprecedented time that we're all going through with the quarantine and everything? How are you doing? You know, uh, mentally, I go somewhere between is this the apocalypse and how cool this is a sabbatical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. I know. I know. I think. That's it's it's such a surreal moment, um, and it's historical. It's like wow, I can actually talk about it and tell like you know the young you know the younger generation, and we'll like be in textbooks, you know. Right. Well, hopefully so, that's not the positive thinking side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> but anyway, so we want to take it back to like when this dream became a reality of picking up the guitar and wanting to learn it. I read that you were inspired by your older sister at around the age of eight. The one thing is so intriguing is what influenced you to go ahead and just say, I'm going to learn this guitar and then enroll at GIT, which is now Musicians Institute. What made you to want to enroll in that school and, and get it all started? Well, uh, uh, they, I, I was in their third class they ever had. And they were advertising in Guitar Player Magazine to try to get the word out that there was a school in Hollywood. And so I went to a symposium that was a two or three day weekend thing. And with no intention of joining the school, I just wanted to go and see what was up there. And uh, I, every teacher was so far over my head. I had no clue, despite taking lessons since I was eight years old. It was mostly jazz players talking about reharmonizing this and that and I you know I'm still sitting on my Susie C chord <laughs> but uh, uh, while I was there I ended up taking a test and flunking because uh, I, I just didn't have the 
the basic skills. Like even though I had been playing so long, I didn't know diatonic scales. I didn't know the difference between a G major seven and a G dominant seventh.、Uh, I didn't know harmonic minor scales, and so、uh, they they sent me back home, and I studied with a jazz guitar player named Peter Sprague, a monster player in San Diego, really intensely for six months, and then I was able to get in. Oh, sweet. Sweet, and that's um, and that's where you actually started experimenting with the two-handed tapping technique. Was it there at, at GIT? Well, that the seed was planted there. We would get a really killer seminar every month by different monster players like Pat Metheny, Larry Carlton, Lee Rittenour. And one month it was Emmett Chapman who invented the Chapman stick that Tony Levin made famous. And you know, there's at that time there was sixty. Students total, and 59 of us thought, you know, we're just trying to get these six strings down, and to pick up a whole new ten-string instrument that's tuned completely differently. Nobody had any interest, but Steve Lynch, a fellow classmate, it planted a seed in his head、uh, because the, the Chapman stick, there's no picking; it's all tapped. So he started experimenting with tapping on the guitar with the right hand. And I was checking in every couple of weeks to see what he was up to, and it was just so fascinating. I knew I had to have some of that. But the school year was so intense that I didn't have a spare moment to do any extracurricular study. So as soon as we graduated,、uh, I, I got a lesson from him, and then I started going off because once I understood the basics of the concept of what he was doing, then it was a fun time, and I, I just went bananas experimenting with. Two-hand chords and percussion kind of stuff, and、um, yeah, I, I stuck with it. Wow, wow, and、um, and even like even as far as back then,、um, going into a school like that, you were like probably one of the few female guitarists that was enrolled there, maybe the only female guitarist. I was the only one, and which was kind、oh, of shocking.、Wow. On day one, you know, I, it, it never occurred to me my whole life because I was a closet player, right? I never went out and played gigs until after the school was done, and I I just went for my weekly lessons at the music stores and all that. And when I got into the class, it was just kind of shocking that it, you know, this is not a normal career choice for women.、Mm -hmm. Well, you definitely opened doors. That was, you know, open doors for like the female musicians to come out, and to this day,、really. good. <laughs> it's well, awesome. It's, it's still so off balance, though. You'd think all these years later. In fact, when I got the Michael Jackson tour in 1987, I thought, okay, the revolution's beginning, and Prince had Wendy and Lisa, and let's、uh, say Billy Idol had a female、uh, keyboard player in the videos, and I thought, okay, now I'm with Michael. It's going to be a big change, but. Seriously, 25 years went by with no change at all. But finally, there, there's been a real explosion. I think because everybody has decent speed internet now, and once young girls can see other women on YouTube, they're you know they're all in. So it's a big change. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I totally agree with that. And um, and that that can you know I would like to even go into the you know the gig that you got with Michael Jackson. The the big thing is the audi audition process to、yeah. that, and how you um how you got the call to to go in for the audition itself. 
<laughs> yeah. How did that go about? Well, funny you should say that because I just started a, a road stories series on my YouTube channel that is called K. So this one time, okay, and that's how it's pronounced. It's like Valley Girl. <laughs> Yes, yes. I, I actually did see that. Okay. <laughs> well, I've, I've got three episodes now. I uploaded one yesterday, and that one I have some of my audition video in it. So I, I tell the story about that. But basically, <clears throat> there was a Musicians Institute. After I graduated there, I went back years later and was teaching there, and they had a referral service for people that were looking for players. And luckily, I got a call that he was auditioning people. So I, I went in and uh, I actually went, asked when the last possible time I could audition would be so I could stay home and really work on the tunes and have it nailed. And it was about three days later I went in and lo and behold, there was no band. It was just me playing to a video camera that Michael would look at later. And I already knew the Beat It solo because I had been playing that in a cover band. Uh, and that sure came in handy and bought me a house in the end. <laughs> but uh, Nice. They, they're basically asking, well, the only guidance I was given was to play some funky rhythm stuff because that's, you know, even though I'm known for the beat it solo, 95% of the show was just playing parts. So I, I played some funky rhythm. Then I played the giant steps solo that ended up on my debut record that it was a, a worked out tapping solo. And I ended with the beat it solo and, and did some improv in between. And I don't know, several days later, I, I got a call back that Michael was interested and come down and play with the band and see how it goes. And two months later, I was in Tokyo. Wow, that was a whirlwind, like, whoa. <laughs> you get one call, yeah. you go in for an audition, and then you're, you're touring the world. Yeah. Basically. And I, I, you know, there might have been others, but I think that's the only audition I ever did, except for a cover band that I didn't get the gig. <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah. how funny. Yeah. You know, the for the audition prep, um, were you told what type of, like, what songs to play or that, oh, okay, well, we just want you to come in and do anything. And then you were, like, put on the spot to, to play something or how you know, was that? I, I think, I mean, this is many years ago, but I think the, the man who called me gave me three or four songs. And so I did learn those, but I didn't end up playing them when I showed up there. So it was pretty much just up to me. And then at the very end, he goes, okay, so Michael wants to get an idea of your personality. And that was the hardest part. I was like, what do you say to a video camera to impress Michael Jackson? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and for some reason, That's all that, that part is not on the videotape I got a hold of. I, I just got to five years ago. So it's looking back, I was just a, just a punk ass kid trying to look cool. <laughs> That's so awesome. And because I did find your YouTube series, which we will put in the show notes, because I think it's so interesting in the fact that you do have audition material, which is so cool. Now, did Beat It, was Beat It one of those songs or you were just like, oh, let me just play that? Yeah. When I got there, there were no requests other than playing some funky rhythm stuff. But I, I knew, obviously, he would need Beat It because it was such a big hit. And I knew it. So I, I played it, um, you know, with, with no band or tracks or anything so luckily wow. and that that song that solo when i first heard it it just kicked my ass and i gave up trying to learn it about three times before i finally got it and boy did perseverance pay off so you've toured you toured with him for three world tours that's a long time 
<laughs> yeah, the first tour was a year and a half long, and I did not want it to end. It was what a wonderful way to see the world. And somebody that had uh, grown to the heights that he had, he didn't have to play every day. You know, most bands, it's so expensive to take a crew on the road, and you know, the there's not much margin for error before you start losing money. But with Michael, we only played two or three days a week. So we all had plenty of time. Well, I won't say all because the roadies were busy with setting up the next show while the band was lollygagging around Rome, going to the forum, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. um, it was just a wonderful way to see the world to have days off and get per diem that covered your food. And while your paychecks are just gathering up in the bank, uh, I would certainly miss that part of it. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I um, did read about is how they styled you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess with Michael, you know, ultimate showman, I could see that he would want everything big, okay. you know, and so how, how was that experience? You know, I, I consider myself very, very lucky because fashion has always been pretty much the last thing on my mind. And at that time in the 80s, you would see ads in the LA, uh, there was a, a magazine called The Music Connection. And there was all these ads looking for players. It was like, we need a guitar player, must have hair. You know, it was way more about the look than the music. And fortunately, Michael went for the music first and knowing that he could transform me and he hired an artist to draw up a look and and to paint up three costumes for each performer and then he got the hair and makeup people involved and the wardrobe people took measurements and sewed the looks into being it was an incredible process mm, that's awesome you know the um the one myth that i read about throughout the years was um something about eddie van halen coming to you and asking you about the beat at solo <laughs> yeah well <laughs> it, it was just a bit of kismet because i it was one of those awful L.A. days where the traffic was hell and it was hot and sweaty and nasty. And there was about two weeks off between legs of the tour on the bad tour. And I showed up at a rehearsal hall because I had a gig with the, uh, one of the bands I w had been in before Michael. And I remember I showed up late and the manager ran out to the car and said, Eddie Van Halen's next door. And he wants you to prove you can play the Beat It solo. And my first reaction was just no, because I was so stressed out about everything. Not only that, but I didn't have my guitars with me. I just had a little Steinberger travel hotel room guitar with a crap tremolo system. And I thought, man, I'm, I'm just not going to do that. So next thing I know, his, his tech comes over to our rehearsal hall after I had set up and said, well, will you just come over and say hi? And I said, of course I will. So I went over and as soon as I got there, Eddie put his 5150 Strat on me, <laughs> which anytime I play a man's guitar, it pretty much comes down to my knees, right? And his, <laughs> um, his tremolo bar, he keeps it loose and I keep mine... Uh, well, I, I keep it set where I know I can get to it easily. So I, I played the solo for him, and it, it was a little bit of a struggle because I had to keep searching for the bar when I needed it. But after I played it, he grabbed his guitar back and basically wanted me to show it to him. <laughs> you know, because it was one of those things where it was improvised. He went in, uh, Quincy Jones was recording the thing. From what I hear, he, he just laid down two different solos and they comped them together. So it's not something he ever played with Van Halen or ever played again. 
Um, but he picked it up extremely quickly. And it was really interesting because although we were both playing the same notes, he was playing several passages a different way because his hands can stretch a lot further than mine. So I, so mm. for one part of it, I remember I did some tapping with my right hand where actually he just did this enormous stretch with his left hand. And I would have done wow. anything to have had a smartphone at that time to video it. But sadly, it is only in my memory. Mm. That's because that, that's amazing, too, that you say that, because you do see like when you're looking up certain solos from like the original player that how they play it different than maybe somebody else that would interpret it. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, Definitely. there's a whole lot of wrong talk on YouTube, man. <laughs> <laughs> if you're ever looking for how to play this or that oh man there's so many videos i go you know i'm thinking wow this could be a shortcut to see what they're doing and i go oh my god that's not even the right notes in fact you know i, I think the epitome of all that was i downloaded a karaoke track of beat it one time and the main riff there's only five notes in it and they got two of them wrong <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah. And they're selling it as a karaoke track. And I'm like, oh, Lord, people. Anyway. Oh, geez. I'm going to have to study that song again because we kind of play it at, in my band, but I don't play the solo. I'm like, if I can't play that solo, I'm not even trying. It. It's a challenge. <laughs> but It's still a challenge for me. I had to work really hard on it. And every night uh, I had an extra challenge because we were tuned down to C. So... I'd be playing normal tuning all night long. A song, you know, my showcase, I had this Frankenstein guitar with piano string wires, you know? So it was a completely different feel. Plus they turn out the lights and I had fiber optic lasers coming on my head. And yeah, challenges they don't tell you about in music school. Wow. What an experience though. Yeah. <laughs> so the the biggest shows ever with Michael Jackson. And then the one other thing I wanted to touch on is I know one of your musical influences Jeff, is Jeff sure. Beck. And you got to tour with him and record with him. Yeah, best of both worlds, huh? Pretty fairy tale. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Now, how, well, I, I'm just going to take that how and run with it. Um, I just wanted to meet him. I just wanted to meet him, get an autograph. I had been so immersed in his music for so long. And at one point I learned every single solo on two of his CDs, Blow by Blow and Wired, long before CDs existed. <laughs> that was from the LP or cassettes at that time. And I knew Terry Bozio, who, who did the Guitar Shop record with him. Um, and I, I told Terry I wanted to meet him. And I, I think, actually, you know what I did on the Bad Tour? I had a bunch of Jeff Beck t-shirts and I had photos of me doing interviews with the Jeff Beck t-shirts. And, and so I sent those to Terry to get to Jeff, which I don't know if that ever happened. But then the Dangerous Tour happened and I knew we were going to England. So I, every country we went to, I would ask the Sony reps that were always backstage if there was any connection to Jeff and how to get him to a show. And eventually somebody came through uh, out of London and the show that he was invited to 
at the last minute, he got turned away at the gate because Michael canceled the show after two opening acts went on. And I was devastated. I thought, oh my God, my one chance to meet him is just poof, gone with the cancellation. So I called him the next day and I said, you know, I don't know when or if they're going to make up the show, but can I meet you anyway? And he said, sure. So I went down to the studio he was recording his rockabilly record at at that time with the the Newtown Playboys and you know made my connection hung out for a little bit um I gave him a copy of my first CD that had just come out above blow and beyond and also the MTV over there at their midnight hour they were playing my flight of the bumblebee video and they had just given me a couple copies of that, which were PAL format, which you can't use in America. So I gave him one of those, too. Went about my way thinking, OK, bucket list check. And he called me a month or so later and said, I finally had a chance to listen to your record properly. Uh, let's do a record together. And of course, I just peed myself. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and it actually wasn't for five years uh, that anything happened and I saw him a couple times on tours in the meantime and every time I saw him he'd say we're going to do this thing and I thought well you know I know what it's like to be inspired in the moment and then things get in your way and you just move on to other things and I thought he was just saying that because I was in his face but lo and behold he finally called me and said I've got this tour booked of Italy come over and I thought man he's I mean he's the kind of guy that uh, jump and the net will appear because he had never played with me. He's at that point, he was just going on the strength of my two records. And I, I thought he was, he might be nuts. And so I had a, I had a thing where I flew to Italy to do some sessions. And then I also booked myself to London to force an audition on myself to make sure he wasn't crazy. <laughs> so I learned most of the guitar shop record and just played it in his presence. And that night ended up uh, going to at least three in the morning with a whole lot of whiskey that his girlfriend and now wife brought up to us about midnight. <laughs> wow. Yeah, pretty wild story. How long were you with him? Were you touring with him? Three years. We did two records and three toured years. for three years. Yeah, it was really intense and really loud. And honestly, by the time it ended, uh, I was seriously ready for a break. Because um, it, you know, it's not the kind of gig where you can wear earplugs because he'll go from 11 down to a whisper. And invariably, if I have earplugs in, I'll, I'll have a ridiculous delay going on and not even realize it in my system. So it was a perfect amount of time, and I'm glad to have done it. Yeah, because if you really think about like what you did with Michael Jackson, and he toured on three, you, you toured with him on three um, albums of his, yeah. right? Over what 10 years, uh, Bad, Dangerous, and History, all of his solo tours without his yeah. brothers. Yeah. So, so, you, and then you're going into Jeff Beck, which is, you know, you're talking Jeff Beck. Yeah. It was pretty intimidated <laughs> in the beginning. In fact, you know, during those five years since when he first called me to join him and when I did join him, I'd have these recurring nightmares that, you know, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> I remember one where I was, I was hanging out um, in France with, uh, Tony Levin, or no, uh, Tony Hymas and Terry Bozio, and I just felt so out of place. And I go, oh, Jesus Christ. And, and honestly, pick up, and he sent me tracks to learn. One of them was a, a duet with piano, 
and it was very classical and it was beyond uh, the octaves that a guitar could do and I, I was going over that going oh my god you got the wrong girl <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, but um, it worked out so perseverance once again Mm. Like those are those are good things to like think about. Like you, you think, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it. But for some reason, you do it. You get, you know, you just go in there and it works out all the yeah. time. Yeah. You know. Now you said that while you were touring or when you met Jeff Beck, that you had your first studio album was out around that time. I did want to talk about the flight of the bumblebee, of course, the video, <laughs> the right, bees. Yeah. Oh, that. Wow. Like, was that for real? <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I knew my record company wanted to do a video for it. And about that time, I, I was watching, this is how long ago it was, I was watching Johnny Carson late night. And there was a guy named Norm Gary that, that played in a plexi cage on the show, uh, playing Dixieland clarinet covered in bees. And his story was fascinating. He's a, a bee scientist, well, entomologist, they call it. At that time, he worked at UC Davis studying bugs and with his specialty in bees. And he talked about how he did it, where he would put um, synthetic pheromone on his uh, clothing and take the queen bee away so the bees would not be defensive. And that's how you make it work. And so I thought, great. I, I was adventurous. I called him up. I tracked him down, which before the internet was not that easy and got a hold of him. And um, eventually we worked it out where he was coming down anyway, because uh, most of the bee scenes that you see in movies, he's behind that, whether it's my girl or fried green tomatoes, he did the bees in that. So he was coming down to Hollywood anyway, from Sacramento for some B, not the bug, but a B movie as opposed to first run. <laughs> and so he had a van full of bees and, you know, to him, it was just another day of putting bees on somebody. But I remember the first thing he said is, okay. I mean, he just laughed when I told him what I wanted to do, but uh, he said, okay, first of all, you got to have a nurse with adrenaline standing by. Cause if anybody's allergic, you know, you don't want people dying just to do a stupid music video. So I knew somebody that knew somebody. We had the nurse there. We, we had a crew. In fact, um, we called up a, a local film school to get some student filmographers there, too, just to have extra footage along with our pro team. Because we thought, man, if anything goes wrong, I am not going to do this again. And uh, it took about two hours, I'm guessing. And he would take these racks of bees one at a time after he put the pheromone drops on me. And just place them on me and, and they would stay. And I remember it was kind of a, a chilly day. But once I had 150,000 bees on, it was like a really warm coat. Noisy, very noisy. <laughs> I, I put, uh, mm -hmm. put earplugs in and I put off repellent in my hair and my face so they, they wouldn't be going up my nose and stuff. And at the very end of the shoot, he goes, okay, now is the difficult part, which, you know, I didn't even think it through. He said, getting them off you is an issue. And I thought, oh, holy shit, really? <laughs> so he he had these uh, these smoker guns, uh, and he'd smoke them so they'd get confused and fly off, and also, also a whisk broom. And while he was doing that, we were walking away from the original site that we had shot. So it worked eventually. And I tell you what, I was about two feet away from leaving and getting in my car and I got stung 
Yeah, and that was because I, I was wearing a one-piece jumpsuit, and I had duct tape the ankles and the wrist so they couldn't get caught, and the duct tape came loose, and one of them got in there. So uh, oh, it was no big wow. deal, but um, a year or two later, I was hiking up in the mountains and got nailed again, and that time I ended up in the hospital. So, yeah, now oh, I have wow. to take an epic pen around. The things you do to try to sell music, huh? <laughs> right, right. Because I was wondering how, like, the aftermath, like, how did you get, how did they get those bees off of you? And do, do they fly yeah. away or do they go in a cage? What, what? Oh, they just fly away? Well, not away. Um, they they had these racks they would collect them in. And I think that the normal kind of boxes that you'll see where, you know, honey, honey beekeepers have in the various areas of the earth and I, I think they must have had some kind of attractant to get them back in the boxes and of course I'm sure they lost some a certain percentage and bees don't live that long anyway but um, yeah they worked it out the guy knows what he's doing in fact he wrote a book maybe five years ago on how to be a, a hobby honeybee keeper and I thought you know I am not a good candidate for that <laughs> <laughs> so you have a, a huge discography of work, starting from your first album, and then the latest is the 2017 release. And I want to say his name right, Mark. Yeah, Shearer? it's it's is pronounced like Share, S H A R E, but the, the spelling is uh, S C H E R E R. Yeah, it's not an easy one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, so um, the one thing about your instrumental work is some of it's melodic, some of it's fun, some of it's fresh, hard, heavy, funky, classical. What is your approach when you start thinking, okay, I want to do an album and here's where I'm going? Is it a lot of inspiration? Well, you know, that- all three of my records, and I, you know, I don't consider the, the Cher Batten record is a vocal record, so it's... I was a, a, I came in at the eleventh hour on that. So when I speak of this, it's um, only for the instrumental guitar stuff. There was quite a few years between records, and so I was just in you know a whole different chapter of my life when I started getting into the second record and the third record. Um, the first record was just kind of a proving ground, and it was produced by Michael Cimbello, who wrote Maniac for the Flashdance movie. And he had a lot of control over that. I mean, I, I, I think all of the tune choices were mine except for one of his. Um, but he insisted on drum machine, which I wasn't really thrilled with. And so the next record, once ADATs were invented, it just gave everybody freedom. You know, I didn't need a producer. I didn't need to to schedule hours. I could just go to my garage and carve away as I chose. And that one I hooked up with a great drummer that Terry Bozio recommended named Glenn Sobel, who's now playing with Alice Cooper and Ricky Walking, great friend of mine, great bass player. And we just got together and we're very, you know, I had all the demos I walked in with, very raw demos, and just let them have creative freedom. Uh, there wasn't much raining in at all. Uh, so the songs ended up pretty long in hindsight. But um, yeah, it was it was a kind of a world beat adventure because I was super into world beat at that time, African drums and that sort of thing. And then the, the third record, Whatever, 
that all came from working with Jeff Beck and writing stuff for him. And he's the one that turned me on to electronica and techno. And so I kind of went in that direction. But I would <clears throat> be more likely to call it gitronica than electronica. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of cool, different kind of music on that on that record. Back in um, with Michael Jackson, did did you guys have like in ears to work with? I know you were talking about that earlier. Did you have amps set up on that? Because I know now when you think about like some of the artists that are playing out, a lot of their their musicians don't have like amps on stage or anything like that. It's yeah, which guitar players hate. It's uh, it's just so dissatisfying. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think we had in ears on the bad tour i'm pretty sure we didn't on the dangerous tour that might have been when in-ears were introduced but um in, we also had monitors in, in case something happened with the the feed for the in-ears so i i would pull out at least one ear when i went out front for solos because it, it just didn't feel right otherwise and that that was the early days of in-ear monitors where they're kind of uncomfortable and they were plastic molds instead of silicone and I, I've gone back and forth with in-ears over the years. Uh, I went for one that Sensophonics came out with that was super expensive. That was $2,500 at the time that had the benefit of um, there were microphones in each ear and it went into a box so you could dial in how much ambient sound you wanted from the outside world. And so you could do rehearsals. And if somebody was talking between songs, you didn't have to pull your in-ear out. Uh, so that's that was the best of both worlds, but not great. And I still struggle. And I, I just launched a cover band for the Portland area last year. And everybody's on in-ears. And, you know, the singer loves it. The bass player loves it. I do not love it. And I'm still experimenting with trying to make it work. Um, I discovered the Audix i5 mic, which was a, a real improvement on the speaker cone. But, I, you know, guitar players kind of rely on that air. We don't get down on our knees and have have the speaker in our ears. And that's really what you're doing when you have in-ear monitors is the speaker's going directly into your ear. And it's a little a little too direct. So I I keep buying things hoping the next thing will be what makes me happy and it never is. <laughs> so <laughs> do not have the answer mm-hmm. here, but I, I've tried uh, adding ambient mics and uh it, the latest thing I'm doing is combining, I'm using the, the Blue Guitar Amp 1, and Thomas Blue that invented it also has a thing called the Blue Box, which is a IR speaker emulator with 16 different uh, IR speakers to choose from. And I, th- I think I use a, a 1967 Marshall, and it's got also a, a virtual speaker placement knob on it. So between that and the speaker, I'm I'm getting closer to being happy, but I cannot claim to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know how it is um, going through trying to find your tone. Like there's always that time where you're like, okay, I'll get this amp, that amp, or this guitar and that guitar to, to eventually get your tone. You get it, but then you want something else. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we own... We own 10 guitars. It's endless. And the thing, I mean, the theory behind in-ears is great because it's, you can, in theory, get total control where if you place the mic the same way every night and it's going in your ears, you don't have 
the variability of the audience, which every new audience member is going to change the psychoacoustics of the room. So th there's there's no controlling that. You know, anybody that's been playing any length of time knows that you do sound check, everything's wonderful, and then you do the show and everything has changed because it goes from an empty room to a filled room. And sometimes it can be really shocking, like what the hell do we even do sound check for? You know? <laughs> But you know, in theory, in ears are the way to go, and they keep working on them with more and more drivers, and uh, it will get there eventually. Right when I retire. <laughs> That's Murphy's right law. when you retire. <laughs> yeah. What is your um, your go-to guitar? I know you probably had used a few through the years, um, from playing out on tour to playing now. But what is yeah, your go-to uh, guitar? Yeah, for the last now? three or four years, I've used a Washburn Parallax. They have a, a Parallax series they came up with uh, half a dozen years ago or so, and I really like it. It's the first 24 fret guitar I've used. Uh, I I did some mods, so I have a. For many years, I've been using more of a Gibson scale, short scale neck, and their their stock one is more like a Fender scale. So I had to modify that, and I took out the pickups and put in a, a Fishman Modern in the bridge, and uh, <clears throat> the other two are from their Strat series, which I I really dig, especially the Modern. I just love the response for soloing. Um, the Strat pickups is, is kind of a compromise because when you have 24 frets, you cannot do the placement of pickups like a Stratocaster has. There's just not enough room. So it's, you know, it's the best of both worlds. And I keep going back between that. And um, I, I just recently got a hold of the guy that makes my amp, Thomas Blue, also has a guitar line, though he's, he's just firing it up and not pushing it just yet. And it's such a different feel. It's, uh, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but I love the sound of it. So I'm always in the two worlds, man. It's, it's just, uh, I am perpetually frustrated because for many years I've been using Digitech gear and I'm using the four cable method. So the amp is the amp and I'm only using the Digitech for effects. And there are certain sounds that I get that I, I can't find in other equipment. And a year or so ago, I got into the Line 6 HX Stomp, which is a, an incredible, powerful box that's versatile. And it's 2.7 pounds compared with 13 pounds of the Digitech unit I've been carting around the world in my suitcase. So it, because of the weight, I declared I would marry that thing. <laughs> so I've been programming it for quite a while, but there's certain sounds I just can't get in it, and it drives me up a wall. I did want to talk about your uh, your damper. How did you come about? Uh, it was product? out of need, really, because um, I really, really got into tapping, and the sock is really not practical. Because uh, if you have it tied around the fret, you need to get out of the way and hurry if you want a harmonic or an open string. And especially if you have a Floyd Rose, you got that big honking locking nut that you you got to put it back and forth over. And and also there was a guy, and I remember his name because I met him one time. His name was Buddy Dunkel, that invented not the first string damper because the first one was invented by George Van Epps, a, a jazz guy in the 50s. But I saw in the back of Guitar World magazine in the classifieds, this guy was selling a string damper called the Clean Axe with a K. And so I bought several of those. And at that time, he had foam rubber material that went against the strings. And if you were tapping or picking, uh, 
you would hear the clicking of, of the string by the nut hitting the foam rubber. And so I immediately replaced that with um, string damper material from a piano and that improved it. And I, I did other improvements on it uh, and eventually uh, thought, well, I, well, it was when I went to China and I met a Chinaman. <laughs> I said, well, now I have my Chinese connection. I can get it made <laughs> here because I tried to get, I had a prototype made up and I tried to get them uh well, I asked what the cost would be to get them made in America. And to do a thousand units would cost me a hundred dollars a piece, which is just extremely prohibitive. And, you know, when you can get a guitar from China for two or three hundred dollars, that ain't bad. Nobody's going to spend one hundred fifty, two hundred dollars on a string damper. So uh, I did get them made in China and uh, I'm almost sold out. I've got a few left, maybe, uh, I don't know, 30, 40. I, I use it all the time. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, we'll put a link up to that, to your website, because I know it has your products and your music up there. We have this fun question. We always want to know, like, well, we know we're all in quarantine, so, of course, you're probably doing everything that you would do when you're not writing music or when you're not out on tour. <laughs> what um, what do you do besides you know, um, writing? You know, when I'm happiest, it means I have time to, to work on visual arts, and I've gone into glass and stained glass and fused glass really intensely. And the latest thing has been steampunk art, which I've been obsessed with steampunk stuff for a good 10 years. And I make these sculptures out of found objects uh, and gears and, you know, clocks and things you would find in the steampunk era. But honestly, right now, I, I'm scrambling like every other musician on the planet trying to figure out how to make a living online because even if they lift the, uh, the stay-at-home orders a month from now, um, people are not going to want to gather. And so I think clubs are out for quite a while. In fact, they're talking about things like Coachella and big festivals. They're not even thinking of booking them until the fall of 2021. So in the meantime, if we don't work, we're you know we're going to be in the poorhouse or working at Amazon delivering boxes. So I, that's why I'm on my YouTube channel and, mm -hmm. and trying to get subscribers. And when I first started YouTube, uh, anybody could monetize, and now you have to have four thousand hours uh, of viewing before you're able to do that. And I've I've never been consistent about putting stuff up on YouTube because I'm always on the road, but uh, I'm got my nose in tutorials every day trying to figure out how to do this and that and add green screen to make things better and so that's that's really full time during lockdown I, i'm not taking any time to do art yeah i was really curious when i did um you know when i've seen some of the videos are you doing yeah, all and by yourself all that editing of swearing and, that goes on in my house you know the cuts <laughs> i get so frustrated, man. I see these tutorials oh, and they say, wow. you know, click here, click there and go into this file and, and then you'll be cool. It'll look great. And I do everything they say and it looks like crap. And so, uh, oh God, what is it? It's horrible. He changed the name of his channel so I can't remember it. It's something like Gear TV. Um, and he's using the exact same Logitech camera I'm using, his stuff. And so he gave me all his settings and I put my settings in or his settings in OBS uh, streaming software 
and it didn't make it any better. So I'm just very confused. I bought lights on Amazon and the green screen and, you know, it's is what it is. I mean, I'm going to keep putting up content, but it doesn't look as sharp as I would like. Mm. If you ever need any advice, though, that's I do that for a living. I do video editing, oh, Lord. graphics, and all that. So if you never need <laughs> Jenny Jam, Fret Sisters, oh, <laughs> anyways. Yeah, well, you know, I, I do. A, um, <clears throat> one of the things I do um, is a solo multimedia show, so I I know how to edit video. I, I'm not deep into effects, but I've I've got like three hours of material I can play in sync with videos. I've been doing for 10 years and took it around the world really uh, and that's how I do my clinics as well instead of just playing the tracks there's videos that are cut in sync with the music but as far as the streaming thing oh girl I'll buy you lunch <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you know it seems like it's a it's a brand new thing for like everybody out there because they are using like trying to use Instagram, trying to use YouTube and trying to use um, Facebook. But I feel like eventually some young kid is going to come up with something <laughs> and become rich again, <laughs> like, you know, become this rich kid, you know, like there's always somebody that like is like, OK, yeah, I see what's happening. Let me develop this product. You know, oh, believe me, they are working Bam, hard there on we it. Go. And, something you know, it seems to me. Obviously, on Skype and Zoom, you, you cannot play with another player because it won't be in sync because of the lag time. But it seems like there should be an automated um, lag algorithm that would just make it so you are in sync. If, if everybody could play to a click that you don't hear on the recording. Uh, that was like a beat, like a beat ahead, I think, like. One person will play, and then the next person has the beat ahead. Well, it is beat now, ahead, but right? if, like if some genius came up with right? an automatic uh, lag correction tool, then we could all play live. Uh, I know everybody's researching that right now because you see all these videos online that look like people are playing together that are not. Because yeah. it, it all has to start with one person with a, with a click track or some, uh, some kind of basic track, mm -hmm. and then people layer on top of that. Yeah, 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 and then somebody puts it together. <laughs> yeah. So Jennifer, gosh, um, great. This is a great, all great information. I just want to know, like, do you have any advice for like the upcoming musicians, the female musicians? I know we said earlier that it just seems like there's like a big explosion of artists using female musicians. Yeah. You know, hiring them more and more. Um, which is great you know what, I, what, what kind of I advice see is now is the time because back when I was coming up uh, the male bands didn't want to know about having females in the band in fact the, the one cover band I told you about earlier that I auditioned for and failed uh, at the end of the audition the guy said yeah that was great but you know we always have trouble with chicks and that was the end of it. I thought, why the hell did you even have me come here, you little bastard? So, uh, but things have changed to the point where now people are looking for females because there's because of Prince and Michael Jackson and because there are so many great players out there now. It's it's kind of a fashionable thing. So take advantage of it and, and help balance the playing field out there because it's still... God, I remember... Um, Guitar Player Magazine did a cover story on me in 1989, and the way it started out said that there are more women that subscribe to Playboy Magazine than to Guitar Player Magazine. 
<laughs> and it's, yeah, it's the more mm. creative women that are out there, like Lari Basilo um, from uh, Portugal, or not Portugal, from um, the Portuguese speaking uh, Brazil. Yeah, yeah, yeah really Brazil. great players oh, out wow, there. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, the history of guys saying girls can't play, that's over. So actually dive in with, with both feet and uh, put an anchor in there and don't move. Yeah, yeah. And it's still true, though, because, I mean, even today, there's still people still kind of like intrigued or, you know, like questions and judge women that play. And it's like, why? We're in 2020. Like people are out there. There are skilled players out there getting those gigs. And yeah. you still have to say well, something, you know? If you, it's crazy. Uh, bird's eye view, it's still a man's world in every single field, pretty much. I mean, even in Christ's sake, you would think that yeah, the traditional yeah, role for females at the there, there are so many more male cooks that uh, are famous and have books and TV shows and stuff. It's just what the hell. But you know, I mean, you, you can't you can't look out there and go, oh, we are the downtrodden ones. <laughs> you know, it's like when you get into music and you know that you want to do that for a living, you just can't let anything stop you. And if you run into negativity, just turn the other way because that is not the right door for you. Mm-hmm. True, true. Well, you yeah, have to for, have, for you any have to have art, skin, whether it's painting, sculpting, anything, you, you definitely have to because it, it's mm-hmm. like you're putting your you're putting your feelings out there when you create a song or a painting. It's it's like, yeah, this is your soul that you're offering to the world. And if somebody says, oh, that sucks, it's like, ouch. You, you got to learn to not take it personally because a lot of a lot of the mm. put downs come from other artists that are insecure or failed in some way. And, you know, they're looking for if, if I can put down of a thousand guitar players, if I can figure out in my own mind how to put down 950 of them, I have a better chance, which is just a crazy way to look at it. Um, it's You can't look out there and hear people and be inspired by, mm-hmm. by them in some way. Then what the hell? Yeah, that is truth right there. That's truth. So to um, tell people where we can follow you. Any social media, um, the website? We'll yeah, put this all uh, on. I, I have so. several Facebook pages. I, I got my personal page, and then the, the band page is uh, <clears throat> JB Guitar One. Uh, I think you can probably dial in Jennifer Batten YouTube channel. I, I don't keep those things memorized. <laughs> I can. I can... Yeah, yeah. I actually did. I actually went on YouTube and and um, researched. And yeah, just and I'll take this opportunity to say I also have another up. playlist I started several weeks ago called um, Riff Kitchen. So I'm the plan is to put a new riff up every day. I play it fast. I play it slow. I say what chord it's meant to be played over, and uh, do a little breakdown on it. Just um, less than ten minutes each one. Nice, nice. I did want to ask really quick. I don't want to keep you on the phone too long, but um, that case. So this is one time, okay? No, <laughs> no. Uh, I got that from Storyblocks.com. I, I get a lot of video footage from them, and I looked at a whole bunch of intros because um, I, I already have a subscription to that. And for the Riff Kitchen, I, I paid several guys to do um, do the logo and then do a logo animation. And I thought, man, I got no money coming in. I can't be doing that for for a whole other uh, series that I came up with. So I, uh-huh. so I got that uh, as a pre-made thing. Yeah, I do too. Oh, it's so just, cool, just different. You know, <laughs> I really like it. I don't have to be on the intro. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. And you know, I want to yeah. give a shout out to Gretchen Men for connecting us. Yeah, she's us. great. And we did the tour recently so together. Awesome. It was really fun with Neely Brosh. Oh, yeah, yeah. She was saying that. I know that, you know, we're in the quarantine and like after everything opens up, I'm sure, you know, you'll be out there. But we'll definitely be looking at your social media, your, your page, your tour, your YouTube page to see and to see when your upcoming shows are, are coming out again. You know, to well, follow I, you I and everything. Doing some streaming concerts too. I uh, I just got to awesome. get over some tech humps to make sure it's going to not glitch and look good and sound good. So that'll be out there eventually. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. That would be so cool. Okay, well, Jennifer, thank you again. All right, well, thanks so much. For please me. be safe out there. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Silence him.